Welcome to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton DeFrance. Today we're continuing our study on how to study the Bible. Last week we introduced the concept of inductive Bible study, that is, seeking to establish and apply the teaching of Scripture through inductive rather than deductive inferential reasoning. The inductive approach is evidence-based, and it reaches tentative rather than dogmatic conclusions. David Bauer says that the chief quality of the inductive spirit is radical openness, a willingness to go wherever the evidence leads. And there are at least two reasons that one would take this kind of approach to the Bible. First, because the student realizes that there is something in the Bible which is not in himself or herself, namely divine truth. If you accept that the Bible is a revelation of God in any sense, then you must acknowledge that there is something in the Bible which is not present in your own mind, namely the mind of God himself. In 1 Corinthians 2, 11-13, the Apostle Paul says, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words." This passage expresses both the natural hiddenness of God's mind, because he is not us and we are not him, and the wonder that in history God has revealed himself by his Spirit. Yet apart from that revelation, one is left in that state of not knowing. I've illustrated Bible study as something like approaching a well of water. No one approaches a well to pour water into it. That's not how wells work. Rather, the concept of a well is that it grants access to otherwise inaccessible water. The water is in the well already, and it needs to be drawn out. This brings us to two important terms, exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis means to draw out. Think of the word exodus, which referred to Israel's going out of Egypt, whereas eisegesis means to put in. It's perhaps less commonly heard outside of scholarly circles, but the term eisodus is actually sometimes used to refer to Israel's entry into Egypt during the life of Joseph. So there is putting in. Or there is drawing out. Now, if the Bible is like a well of divine truth, it is not appropriate for us to eisegete, to approach the Bible with our own ideas and seek an opportunity to uh, put them into the Bible's world and message. Rather, our goal must be exegesis, to draw out of the Bible the truth that God has placed into it. However, when one approaches the Bible as a well of truth from which to draw and drink, 
he will quickly find, as the Samaritan woman said to Jesus in regard to another well, the well is deep and you have nothing to draw with, John 4, 11. This is the nature of a well and the difference between a well and a cup or a well and a pond The contents of a well are not readily available. They are not present on the surface. It involves more than merely tipping a vessel toward your mouth. There is a space, and sometimes a significant space, between the water and the thirsty seeker. And that space can only be overcome by a combination of resources and skills. That point nicely applies to our metaphor of the Bible as well. There are several significant gaps between most modern people and the meaning of Scripture. First, there is a time gap. The Bible was written thousands of years ago, and the events which it describes are now very far removed from anyone who might encounter its message today. But it is not a mere fairy tale or fable, which can be meaningfully read outside of that historical context. To understand and appreciate major portions of the Bible, it is necessary to have some awareness of the historical world in which it was written and in which its narrative takes place. Second, there is a geographical gap. The Bible takes place in a part of the world where most of its modern students do not live, and many of them have never even visited. And even if they did, the topography, climate, and ecology of that region, features to which the books of Scripture refer, and often quite subtly, has changed over the centuries. And the names of cities and of areas have changed as well. In the days when the Bible was written to the people who wrote it and to whom it was written, It meant something special to point out that a bull was from Bashan. Read Psalm 22, 12 and Ezekiel 39, 18. But whatever that was, it is lost on most modern readers, regardless of where they hail from. To understand the Bible, then, it is necessary to learn something about the geography of the biblical world. Third, There is a cultural gap. There are some cultures in the modern world who remain closer in proximity of ideology and lifestyle to the culture of the Bible, which is generally called the ancient Near Eastern culture if you're talking about the Old Testament, and the Greco-Roman culture if you're talking about the New Testament. But certainly the Western world in which Christianity has thrived for the past several centuries is radically different and its people are poorly positioned to understand the manners and customs and worldviews of biblical authors and characters. This was most significantly brought to my attention a few years ago when I read a book called Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes, and then its sequel, Misreading Scripture Through Individualist Eyes. Those books alerted me especially to how other Christians in other parts of the world were sometimes in better positions to connect with the message of Scripture than I was because they lived in agrarian and tribal cultures that were built on community and family dynamics rather than industrial, urban, and bureaucratic societies built on individualism and capitalism like I've always lived in. 
In my world, the worst problem that a widow might face is loneliness. In my world, there is no meaningful difference socially between a firstborn son and a thirdborn son, and really between a son or a daughter. I have two daughters and no sons, but that means nothing necessarily to my family economically, and it certainly doesn't change the way that I'm viewed by my neighbors. In my world, growing older is something that carries a shameful connotation. We emphasize the fragility and incapacities of age, and we pressure people to stay and to appear young as long as possible. All of that's very different from the world of the Bible, and as those from my world read Scripture, we might be very confused and even at times disgusted with some of the mores and social conventions which not only made sense, but significantly formed the concepts of justice and dignity for Bible writers and Bible characters. Fourth, there is a language gap. Several years ago, I began to notice a decline in literacy in the United States. While I do not often find people who cannot read at all in my home country— I do often find people whose grasp of English grammar and vocabulary is limited enough that they would find it difficult to engage with a book that was written on a high school level or higher. And that would certainly include the Bible, not least of all due to the unique issues we've already raised about its age and nature. In other parts of the world, it is more common to find people who never learn to read or who do not have access to the Bible, either in whole or in some cases in part, uh, in their native language. And even among highly educated Americans, most of us can only speak one language, and we are totally oblivious to how other languages work. That has been true of me throughout my life, and a friend of mine who is a true linguist once pointed out to me, most Americans think that Greek is just English with different words. After taking a semester of Greek in pursuit of my college degree, I understand exactly what he meant. The reality is that different languages represent unique philosophies of communication, and one must learn not only to identify words, but to think in a language if he or she wishes to really understand it. Yet, for the Bible student, all of this becomes even more complicated because the books of the Bible were originally written in ancient forms of Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, which no one on earth speaks as native languages today. This means that most modern Bible students will have to encounter the Scripture through a translation that somebody else made. That is, most of us have a gap separating us from even seeing what the Bible says on the most basic level which we cannot overcome without help from another person. And the challenges are not exhausted here. There is, furthermore, a literary gap. The Bible is composed of several different kinds or genres of literature, each of which are written according to different conventions and operate by different rules, thus carrying different expectations for the reader to handle them correctly. There's a tremendous difference between how one should read prose narrative and apocalypse or aphoristic wisdom and a parable, and many of those literary forms were culturally or historically specific to the time and people 
who God used to write the Bible. There are no real parallels in modern writing styles, so we will have to learn something about them in order to read the Bible well. There's also what we might call the supernatural gap. Several scholars, perhaps most notably on the popular level, the late Michael Heiser, have pointed out that after the philosophical movement called the Enlightenment, the Western world entered into a modern and scientific age in which our worldview radically shifted from the worldview of the Bible writers and of most humans throughout time. In the past, and in societies which still operate with the so-called pre-modern worldview, people acknowledged the reality of both a seen and an unseen realm, and these two realms were intimately connected. The things that transpired in the seen world were often considered the result of something that had taken place in the unseen world involving spirits or God himself. The Enlightenment saw many thinkers conclude that if the unseen world existed at all, it was a separate, closed system from the seen or natural world. And if intrusions from one world into the other were even possible, they were exceptionally unusual and infrequent. This meant that anyone who wanted to continue reading the Bible in the modern world without seeming terribly out of touch would need to demythologize it, at least to some degree. And most modern Western Bible readers, even those who consider themselves conservative Christians, do this unconsciously simply by reading the Scripture through a modern lens and never stopping to ask if that is appropriate. Now, even for those who manage to study and learn enough to reach beyond some of these gaps, there are still others which are intrinsic to our very nature as creatures and further still as sinful creatures. There is a theological gap. The Bible is the Word of God, and God is not like us. I hope that we have seen already that the meaning of Scripture will never be intuitive to us because of our placement in history and culture. But even if we had lived in the days when the books were written, we would have still struggled with them as their original audiences did. God said to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, 8-9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It would be impossible to conceive of a larger gap than this one, as wide as the distance from earth to heaven. Isaiah warned that because of it, men must seek the Lord, and do so with humility, and trust in his power to overcome the obstacles which we cannot overcome. We must not forget this issue, because the Apostle Paul warns us in Romans 1, 21-23, that if we tried to create a God from our own thoughts and ideas, or to use modern language, if we tried to discover God in ourselves, what we would come up with would be very different from the real thing. As another gap that was recently brought to my attention, and I think it's worth serious consideration, we can call this one the denominational gap. And this means acknowledging that every one of us has our own traditional background, which we bring to the Bible. Remember, from our last episode, it is impossible to truly lay aside your presuppositions. 
but you can and must be aware of them. And I would suggest that you can and must consciously subjugate them to the higher authority of the evidence that will lead you deeper into the well of God's Word. Uh, denominationalism, or its more sinister synonym, sectarianism, refers to an effort to institutionalize felt progress in religious thought and formation. It is the effort to say that I as an individual, or we as a church, or we as a community of churches, have arrived at the destination, at least insofar as what we've considered the essentials are concerned. Denominational identities, whether they are defined by a creedal statement or a political force or a more nebulous set of accepted cultural patterns, build walls to keep others out and to keep the faithful in, and these walls are defended by the claim that they are safeguarding the truth. But in fact, they are safeguarding tradition, and they are stymieing faithfulness. Truth needs no such safeguards. Truth is the fire that consumes all of the things. Truth is the light that dispels darkness. Truth is the thing that always beckons honest people forward and defies walls and breaks them down and grinds them into powder. Truth is that which calls us to move deeper and deeper into God's Word in a relentless pursuit for God's glory. The moment that you say you cannot investigate something within Scripture because you're afraid of where it might lead, the moment that you say that an issue has been settled by your community and it's no longer open for discussion, even if that discussion is driven by a commitment to the Word of God and based on the presentation of evidence, then you have allowed this gap to become more than a gap, but in fact a barrier that stands between you and truth. Radical openness means that everything else is fair game. We believe that the Bible is true, truer than any other voice that is speaking in this world. Its leading is the leading of Christ, and where He leads, we will follow. I'm not advocating for radical individualism, but radical openness. Remember that the inductive method values multiple perspectives. It views them, in fact, as, as essential. Christ has not given the Bible to me, but He has given the Bible to the community of the faithful, to be used in that community. What this point about the denominational gap drives us to admit, however, is that the community of the faithful is not limited to people who I agree with on all the things that I think are important. It includes also people whose perspective might be extremely challenging to me, and I need them to succeed in Bible study. The final gap I will mention today is the personal gap. Sometimes there are issues in our own character and lifestyles which prevent us from accessing and appropriating the truth of God's Word. We'll have more to say about all of these matters in future studies, but in the next few episodes, we're going to focus on that last one. I have often heard people glibly remark that God did not write the Bible for scholars. He wrote it for common people. I'm not interested in arguing that the Bible is not relevant or intended to bless and benefit the whole world, regardless of age or status or socioeconomic position or vocation. I believe with all of my heart and soul 
that the Bible is God's gift to all humanity and vital to all humanity. But even if it were so that God wrote the Bible for common people, which I think is a seriously problematic statement in many ways, even still, they would have been people from another time, another place, another culture than you or me, who spoke a language that you and I do not speak, who read literature that you and I do not read, at least not normally, and who thought about the world in a way that you and I can hardly imagine. So we will have to work, or someone else will have to work for us to help us understand the Bible. There's no way to get around that. Paul told Timothy that he would need to be diligent to be presented before God as an approved worker who did not need to be ashamed because he was handling the word of truth correctly, 2 Timothy 2.15. Peter warned those to whom he wrote that many things in the Scripture are hard to understand, and unlearned and unstable people twist the Scriptures to their own destruction, 2 Peter 3.14-16. So, whoever told you, or me, or anyone else, that it should be easy to understand the Bible and that it will require minimal effort and essentially no education and no help from other people. Whoever said that was wrong. They obviously had not read much of the Bible themselves to reach that sort of conclusion. Bible study is hard, but it is not impossible. The well is deep. But we can collect the tools and learn the skills to draw the truth out of it. I hope that you will press forward with us to improve in our exegetical skills and understanding together. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.